As we come to God's word, let's just pray and ask for God to help us and to help me, shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, a living word that your spirit takes and applies to our hearts, situations that happened almost 2,000 years ago, yet of direct relevance to us today. So help me to explain your word clearly. Grant to me the help of your Holy Spirit. And grant us the help of the Holy Spirit to understand it, to put it into practice. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to all the students here. And... uh, I want to begin with some fantastic news for students, which I believe is exclusive to Charlotte Chapel. Uh, So if you've not got your pen and you're not making notes, uh, you may want to make notes at this particular point, because I have some amazing news that I want to share with you that I received via email. And you're going to find this really interesting if you're a student, all right? Even if you're not a student, it will still be relevant to you, but particularly if you're a student. And I I thought the best way is to put it on the PowerPoint slide. So this is the email that I received. It said this. University diplomas obtain a prosperous future, money-earning power, and the prestige that comes from having the career position you've always dreamed of. Diplomas from prestigious non-accredited universities based on your present knowledge and life experience. If you qualify, no required tests, classes, books or examinations, bachelor's, master's, MBA's, doctorate and PhD degrees available in your field. Confidentiality assured. Call now to receive your diploma within two weeks. Ring 1206-984-0021. Now, isn't that fantastic news? If you're a fresher here, you don't need to slug away for four, five, six years here in Edinburgh. No, you can get a degree in two weeks. However, for those students who have already written down the phone number, what is on offer, of course, is worthless. There is no shortcut to success as a student. Only many, many hours of blood, sweat and tears. If you're at last to qualify with a degree of any kind, let alone a good degree. Now, what is true of any and every student is also true, more true, for anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. Or to use the word that he used, who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the word translated disciple in the New Testament is a Greek word, methetes, from which we get maths. It means a learner or a student. Starting out is one thing. Finishing is another. For between starting and finishing, there are many distractions which could lead you off track and many difficulties which can even stop you in your tracks. Now, today, as we continue our series, and this is number 34 actually, in the New Testament book of Acts, which we've entitled The Spreading Flame, about the spreading flame of the good news of Jesus, going out into the world, we're going to see the example of someone who managed to stay on track despite various distractions and enormous difficulties. His name was Paul. He was a brilliant and zealous young Jew. His life had been dramatically turned around 
and an amazing encounter with Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus, on the road to Damascus in Syria. And the risen Lord Jesus had commissioned him to take his message, the gospel or good news, to the Gentile, the non-Jewish world. And this Paul had done for 20 years, crisscrossing the Mediterranean world in three great missionary journeys, one, two and three, ever-expanding circles, which we've been studying together in the book of Acts. And now, as the third journey draws to a conclusion, after an extended stay in the city of Ephesus in Greece, Paul now has new plans. His plans are to head to Jerusalem, and then from there to go to Rome. When he was in Ephesus, Luke records this. After all this had happened, the things that had happened there, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. Now, the reading that Emma read for us in Acts 21, 1-16, describes this final journey to Jerusalem. Let me just trace it very briefly for those who are interested in travelogues. Uh, there's a map on the screen. Uh, it's not very... It's not kind of out of focus, but never mind. There are maps in the back of the Bibles usually as well. But anyway, uh, they set out by ship and they hugged the coast in a series of kind of one-day trips, which people did rather than going across the open ocean. So they go to the place called Kos, which is 40 miles. Then from there they go to Rhodes, another 90 miles. From there to Patara, another 60 miles. And then they embark on a larger ship, crossing the open ocean, bypassing the island of Cyprus, to Tyre, the city of Tyre, which is in Syria, another 400 miles, probably take them three, three to five days, depending on the weather and winds. After a week's stay in Tyre, they reboard the ship to Ptolemais, another 25 miles, and from there, either by ship or land, it's not absolutely clear, they head another 40 miles to Caesarea, and then, after a few days, Paul and his party continue to the last part of the journey, probably by horseback, if you want to know how I know that, you can ask me afterwards, I won't explain now, to their final destination, which is Jerusalem, 60 miles away. Now, that's the journey that they took. That's the kind of bare bones of the journey. And it's not particularly directly relevant to us. We don't read the Bible to discover how to get from Ephesus to Jerusalem by sea. Well, you might if you're interested in that kind of thing. But what is relevant to us, what I want to focus on uh, this evening is the very fact that Paul made it to Jerusalem despite the fact that most of his friends told him not to go. So I want us to look at how he and how we are able to stay on track. That's our opening theme that we began with. There's no shortcut, staying on track. So let's put the Bible in front of you and we'll have a look at it uh, together. And I want to suggest to help us to focus on this Uh, three different ways by which Paul stayed on track. Uh, As it were, three green lights, which together will help you to stay on track, not just as a student at university, but whatever age you are, as a student of Jesus Christ, and to keep going to the final destination. Here's the first way that you can know that you're on track and stay on track. Number one, responding to the prompting of the Spirit. Let me explain what we mean by that. When you become a Christian, it's not just a cosmetic change. You know, a change of name, or a change of outward behaviour. 
No, it's far more than that. It's a change of nature. When Jesus said to a very religious man who thought outward observance of God's law and demands was his priority, when Jesus said to him, you must be born again, he went on to explain what he meant by that. It's a very hackneyed phrase, born again. He said that born again is like a spiritual rebirth in which the very Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, comes to live within you, producing change from within rather than imposing change from outside. Maybe you're not a Christian this evening. You think, if I became a Christian, I could never live up to it. No, you couldn't. You've not got a chance. The only way you're going to do it is if God comes to live within you and help you to live the life that, humanly speaking, is impossible. So the, the indwelling Holy Spirit is the mark of new birth. Many years ago, I, I shared digs at university when I was at university with, with a, a guy who became a very close friend. He's a very top financier at the probably still is. He probably made his killing before the present crash, knowing him. Uh, and one day, he knew he was a Christian. He said to me, just tell me exactly what is a Christian? And I said, a Christian is a person in whom God lives by his spirit. And he said, well, I'm not one then. And he still isn't, as far as I know, but he still keeps in touch, keep praying on, 40 years on. This is what Paul wrote. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. If the Holy Spirit is not indwelling you, can I say to you, gently but firmly, you are not a Christian. And he goes on to write something else. He says, if, if you're a, a true Christian, if the Spirit of God is living within you, there's an inner confirmation of that. Romans 8, 16, another of Paul's letters to a church in Rome. He did make it there, by the way, in the end. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And I, this is really difficult to explain if you're not a true Christian. If the Spirit of God is not living within you, you'll think I'm talking about something weird. And what, what do you really mean? Well, as we used to say where I come from, it's better felt than telt. You can't explain it, but there is an inner witness that you belong to Christ, that you're his. So when you sing these songs, there's a kind of, can't think of the right words, just kind of witness and testament within your heart that makes it real and you may see people raising their hands or, or looking extremely sort of euphoric. Well, it's part of it is just praising God. It's that witness of the Holy Spirit with your spirit that you belong to Christ. So, the Holy Spirit helps us to become what we could never be by our own efforts. He helps us to become holy like Jesus. That's the mark of the Spirit. If you say the Holy Spirit is living within me and there is no change over a period in your life, you're not becoming more like Jesus, then probably the Holy Spirit is not living within you. The Holy Spirit is the agent of change. And so, using a different picture and another letter that he wrote to one of these group of churches he founded in Galatia, Roman province, Paul says the Holy Spirit produces fruit, Christ-like character. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's Galatians 5, 22 to 23. So, the Holy Spirit helps us to obey God's Word. And anything we might be tempted to do which contradicts God's Word, the Bible, can never be due to the prompting of the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit then guides us in the way that we should go. Again, within the guidelines of God's Word. By confirming that we're on track. 
and also confirming when we get off track. There's a verse in uh, Jeremiah, I think it's Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 30. It's an interesting verse. It says, when you turn to the right or left, you'll hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. It's a kind of negative promise that God has got a plan for your life. And unwittingly sometimes, not willfully sometimes, if you willfully step outside God's will, yeah. But sometimes, unwittingly, you head down a certain course and you just get, you just get a sense of lacking God's inner peace and assurance that this is right. Again, it's very hard to describe if you're not a Christian. But if you've been a Christian any length of time, you'll have experienced that. God's Spirit guiding you and saying, no, this is the way, walk in it. So the Holy Spirit is also the guide for God's will. And, and you learn as you go on as a Christian, maybe you're a new Christian, this is a wonderful thing that will begin to develop in your life as you seek God, God's will for your life. You'll increasingly become more sensitive to the Holy Spirit leading and guiding you. You'll be sensitive to sin because sin grieves God's Spirit and silences His voice. Going your own way quenches God's Spirit. And so you learn to respond to God's prompting. And this is, this is true of Paul here. The reason he's heading for Jerusalem, he doesn't just think, I fancy going to Jerusalem, I've not been for some time. No, there is a sense in which God is prompting us. Uh, if you were here in the last study, uh, when he's in Ephesus, the, the last bit of this journey, um, he's, Acts 20, 22, if you just look back in the chapter, he says this, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Do you, you get the word there? He says, you know, when Jesus was, when Jesus was, baptized afterwards he was driven by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there's a sense of inner compulsion that God has got a plan for you and you have to follow it and this is God's will for you and and Paul goes on to say he doesn't know exactly what awaits him in Jerusalem but he knows it's not going to be easy look at Acts 20 verse 23 I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me However, I consider my life worth nothing to me that I may finish the race and complete the course, stay on track and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So, that's why he embarks on this sea journey. He's going to go to Jerusalem and then from there he's going to go to Rome. He is, to use a phrase from another of his letters, again from Galatians at 5.25, he is keeping in step with the Spirit. Now, if you're a Christian, one of the most important things in your life is to keep in step with the Spirit. One of the worst things if you're a Christian is when you're out of step with the Spirit. Again, it's very hard to describe, but if you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. I know, I've been a Christian for 40 years, and I can tell you the times when I've been out of step with God's Spirit. Too many, really. You need to keep in step with God's Spirit. And so he keeps in step with God's Spirit, but notice from the passage, specifically now we come to the passage, notice he does this despite what other people say. You see that? When they stop at the port of Tyre, they search out the Christians, and then we read some rather strange and apparently contradictory words in verse 4. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, is the Holy Spirit contradicting himself? Saying one thing to Paul, go to Jerusalem. Another thing to these disciples, don't go to Jerusalem. 
And what about this rather strange incident that occurs when they stop over at Caesarea and this prophet called Agabus turns up on the scene. We've met him before in Acts 11. He's the one who predicted the great famine in Judea, which, which was true. His prediction turned out true. Uh, uh, look again what it says in verse 10. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, coming over to us. He took Paul's belt tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And it's no surprise that when when the other disciples hear this, look at their response. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Look what's going to happen to you, Paul. It's terrible. No wonder Paul is literally, he says, I'm heartbroken. It's wonderful to see the relationship these Christians had with one another. This is not some kind of academic discussion. Well, do you think I should go to Jerusalem or not? No, it's heartrending to read the story. Then Paul answered, verse 13, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need just to stop a minute and ask, was this an act of obstinacy on Paul's part or obedience? that he refused to change his mind, determined to go to Jerusalem. One well-known American pastor's got a sermon on this, and the title is, When a Good Man Falls. And he says basically that Paul made a mistake which messed things up for him and a lot of other people. I don't think that's true. Most people believe that Paul was right in his resolve, and that what these prophecies were saying were not prohibitions, but predictions. I, I mean, after all, if... If he'd listened to Agabus and not gone to Jerusalem, then the prophecy wouldn't have been fulfilled, would it? And although it's not clear in verse 4, I think what John Stott says in his commentary is, perhaps Luke's statement is a condensed way of saying that the warning was divine while the urging was human. Uh, In another commentary on Acts, Daryl Buck, in another American writes, the interaction between the believers and Paul about whether he should face suffering is significant because it shows that sometimes well-intentioned people can be wrong about what God desires. He goes on, There is no doubt those who warn Paul have his best interests at heart and are trying to protect him. It is clear, however, that Paul is in a real, has a real sense of what God is calling him to do and that he's prepared himself to pay the human price to do so. Now, again, we need to be very careful here. We always say to young Christians, always take good advice from other Christians who are more mature. And that is certainly true. But there are times when we need to pursue God's will and even fellow Christians will misunderstand what we're doing and try to persuade us to do otherwise. We need to be sure that we're being led by the Spirit, prompted by the Spirit. So, here's the first principle, but the first question Am I responding to the prompting of the Spirit, no matter what others say? Let me simply ask you, if you're a Christian, are you sure you're absolutely right on track in where you're going in your life at this present time? As far as you know. You have a goal in mind. Sometimes God leads us a step at a time. Sometimes he he leads us way ahead. God called me to missionary service in 1967 when I was halfway through my degree. I wrote to the Missionary Society in question and said, I believe God is calling me to be a missionary. Uh, I'll come down next week. I hope there's, you know, there's a boat going next week. 
they wrote to me and said, yes, that may be true. Come and talk to us. And I went and talked to them, still remembering. It's probably still on file to my embarrassment somewhere. And, uh, and uh, they said, that's great. What we suggest is you finish your degree and continue to keep that goal in mind that God has called you to serve him in this mission. We believe it's right, but finish what you're doing. It was not till 1972 that I finally got on a plane to Kathmandu and then ended up in India. But it took five years. But I still had the goal in mind. I knew where God was taking me. I just needed to be a bit more patient and a lot more mature, (laughs) which is why God delayed me for that reason. So, if if you're a student, maybe just starting out, Start seeking God's will, saying, Lord, where do you want me to go? Ask God to prompt you by His Spirit, to lead you by His Word, and to give you a goal and an objective in your life. You may not get the big picture immediately, but make sure that day by day you're walking, keeping in step with the Spirit, and listening, responding to the prompting of the Spirit. Now, this begs the question, of course, when we do this, and sometimes other people disagree, how can we be sure that we're right and, and, and they're wrong? There's no neat answer to that. But there's a second principle which will help us. Another green light. Once these lights line line up together, you begin to be pretty sure that you're on the right track. So, here's a second thing. In going to Jerusalem, Paul was not only responding to the prompting of the Spirit. Here's the second thing. He was following in the footsteps of Jesus. Following in the footsteps of Jesus. Many people have noticed very striking parallels between Paul's journey to Jerusalem and the journey that Jesus took to Jerusalem at the end of his life. Uh, Don't want to go into detail, but just note the the similarities. The journeys of Jesus and Paul. A similar destination, Jerusalem. There's a similar plot by the Jewish leaders as they arrest and hand over to the Jewish, uh, the Gentile Roman authorities. There is a threefold prediction of suffering in Luke's Gospel and again in Acts. And there's a steadfast resolution on the part of both Jesus and Paul uh, to head to Jerusalem. Uh, Luke 9.51 says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Uh, It's quite possible that Paul saw his own journey as a literal retracing of the steps of Jesus to suffering. Although not in Paul's case, death in Jerusalem, but a further destination in Rome where eventually he did die. Now, again, very few of us are called to make that direct journey. But all of us are called to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Jesus himself said no less to his followers. Our journey involves suffering for Christ. Mark 8.34 Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Uh, Today we've lost the impact of the words of Jesus when everyone from sports to pop stars wears crosses around their necks. When Jesus spoke these words, the cross was a symbol of terrible shame, humiliation and death. If you saw someone carrying a cross, you knew it meant only one thing. Not just death, but humiliating, abject, painful death. And Jesus uses this picture and says, this is the picture of what it means to follow me. So if you're going to stay on track, that plan that you've got in mind, if it involves great glamour and glory for you, you may well be off track. If it's going to involve you in denying yourself, and if it's going to cost you something, that's probably almost certainly the way that Christ wants you to go. 
Uh, that was the experience of the first Christians. We've seen it in the book of Acts. They counted it a privilege when they faced suffering like Christ. You remember way back in Acts chapter 5, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Very interestingly, we saw in the first missionary journey that Paul took, after he'd finished it, he went back and retraced his steps to encourage the new Christians, the churches that had been planted, like Andrews described the churches among the Taru in, in the jungle there. Very interesting what all that Luke records that he told them, lesson one in the curriculum was, Acts 14:22. we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Very salutary question. What do we teach people, new Christians in discipleship? We must go through many sufferings and hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It's still the case for Christians in many parts of the world today. When I lived in Nepal, the regular baptismal vows, when people were baptized like people are in our church, in one community I know, when they were baptized, one of the things they affirmed in the pool as they were baptized, or the river, or the tank, they said, I will not turn back when I am imprisoned. Not if, but when. Because everybody was in prison for following Christ in those days, and still are in many cases. And we've somehow lost that dimension of following Christ. In the West, we think the purpose of following Christ is what you gain rather than what we give. We want to experience life, we want to experience the power of the Spirit without the sufferings of Christ. And Paul says, writing to the Philippians, if we want to know Christ, this is what is necessary. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Forewarned is forearmed. Paul was warned that suffering awaited him. He expected it. He, pre- he was prepared for it. Are we prepared for the cost of following Christ? If you're going to stay on track, you need to know this. It will cost to follow Christ. It costs you to be a student to really graduate unless you're an absolute genius. You've got to work pretty hard, blood, sweat and tears, all that. But if you're going to follow Christ, there's no shortcut. There's no way round the cross to the resurrection. Only through the cross. So are we following in the footsteps of Christ? Are we going our own way? Are we taking the easy option or the way of the cross? So here's the second question. Am I following in the footsteps of Jesus no matter what the cost? So these are the two principles looked at. We're coming to the third and final one. Responding to the prompting of the Spirit. Following in the footsteps of Jesus. Finally, in the last analysis, there is a third way which guided him and will keep us going on track and help us to stay on course. Thirdly and finally, submitting to the will of the Father. If you look again at verse 14, after the Christians in Caesarea realized they couldn't change Paul's mind, he was going to go ahead to Jerusalem to suffering, we read this, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Whether or not we think was Paul was right to go to Jerusalem, everyone should agree with the desire expressed in verse 14. The Lord's will be done. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ taught us to pray. Most of us know the words by heart. This is how you should pray, said Jesus. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, it's one thing to pray this in general. It's another thing to pray personally when you're faced with a painful choice. Yet Matthew records and the other gospel writers record that this is what Jesus prayed when he faced the cross. How Jesus prayed. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed in great sorrow and anguish. We've sung the words twice in songs already this evening. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Matthew alone in his Gospel records the slightly different, yet greatly significant words he prayed the second time. He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Christians are not called to be masochists, those who enjoy pain and suffering. Oswald Chambers, in his reading book, which is still well worth reading, my utmost for his highest, says, to choose to suffer means there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will as Jesus did. Whether it means suffering or not, the natural inclination of Jesus, faced with the cross and all the horrors that it entailed, was to shrink back. But we are called, like him, to submit to the will of the Lord, knowing that he is our Father. He prayed, Father, and will only permit what is best for his children. Now, some of you may be facing a similar test at this time. Can you pray, not my will, but your will be done? Maybe you've gone off track at some point because faced with such a choice, you said, my will, not your will. And you've deviated and you're off track as a Christian. It's a wrong step of disobedience. Walking outside God's will. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a career choice. Whatever it may be, we can and must pray, the Lord's will be done. Father, not my will, but your will be done. So here's the third and final question that will help to keep you on track. Now, this is just not a one-offer. This is, as you go on as a Christian, constantly faced with the decisions of life, can you pray, not my will, but your will be done? Am I submitting to the will of the Father, no matter what I may desire. Do we trust God's will? Do we trust that he's our Father and only wants what is best for us? Well, nearly at the end, let's just conclude. Maybe you're a first-year student just starting your course. Uh, great though that is, there is something more important and exciting, whether you're a student or not, and that is starting the course as a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me simply tell you, how do you start What do you have to do to start out as a Christian? Well, the Apostle Peter gave the answer in the book of Acts, way back in Acts 2, when the people said, what must we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, 38. So let me ask all of you, students and everyone, have you started out? And if not, why not this evening? starting out. Maybe you've been a student or a Christian for some time. You've started the course. Here's the second thing. How are you getting on staying the course? 
Maybe some distraction has turned you off course. Off track. Maybe some diversion has, or difficulty has stopped you in your tracks. Let me review again the three questions. And do make a note of them and keep them in mind, whatever decision you face in the future. Am I responding to the prompting of the Spirit, no matter what others may say? Secondly, am I following in the footsteps of Jesus, no matter what the cost? Thirdly, am I submitting to the will of the Father, no matter what I desire? Maybe this evening it's an opportunity for you to get back on track and to say to the Lord, Lord, I'm sorry I've gone off track, I went my own way. There's an opportunity for you to come back and get your, li- get your life lined up with God's will again and to get back on track. Starting the course, staying the course, and finally, at the end of our lives, finishing the course. As we're going to see God willing, if the Lord tarries and we're still here, Paul not only makes it to Jerusalem, he also makes it at government expense as a prisoner of Rome, finally, to the great city of Rome. When we come to the end of Acts Acts 28, we find Paul in Rome, under house arrest, awaiting trial. That's where Luke leaves him in his account. History tells us that Paul was released from prison and embarked on a further mission, but eventually, a few years later, was rearrested and brought back to Rome to stand trial. And this time, there would be no reprieve. Writing a last letter from prison to his young colleague, Timothy, Paul says this, The time has come for my departure. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. But though Caesar's verdict may be negative and death, the thumbs down, he knows this is not the final verdict or the one that really matters. He goes on and writes, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. If you are a student, it will be a great day when you finish your course and you go up on stage and you receive your degree. No doubt you're looking forward to it. But it will be of far greater importance to receive the crown of righteousness from the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome into his presence through that right standing with him, that righteousness that comes only from Christ. If, like Christ, you finish the course. There is no shortcut to staying the course. But with God's grace and help and your obedience, my obedience, we can finally make it to the end and by God's grace hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That should be our prayer. I hope it is this evening. Let's pray now. Gracious Father, thank you that you've called us to follow in the footsteps of your son, Jesus Christ for the privilege of following him and even sharing in his suffering to some small degree. Thank you that you give us your spirit to guide us and lead us. And again, we want to affirm this evening that you're our Father and we trust you. We want to say again, whatever lies ahead of us this week and in the future, not my will, but your will be done. May we know great joy in following you and help us by your grace, finally to complete the course and to receive your commendation and that crown of righteousness. We ask it in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.